Hey everyone, this is Cornbread. We originally recorded this episode in one sitting. However, because of the length, we decided to split this video into two halves. This is the first half of our final episode about the LDS Church and the modern era. The next half will be available next week. That said, we hope you enjoy the show, everybody. Hey everybody, how's it going today? How are you? How are you all on this lovely, lovely Wednesday afternoon? Lovely? Yeah. Raining outside, dude. Rain can be lovely. Eh, I don't know. I want to live in a place where it's always sunny. Always sunny? You don't like the oh, rain, yeah. man? Nah. Well, here's the thing. Think about this, though. Why does it have to rain? During the day, why can't it rain at nighttime when everyone is asleep? Because obviously you need rain, but why does it have to rain during the day? Well, I mean, that's just a question you need to ask God. Or the clouds, I don't fucking know. Ask a meteorologist. I'll tell you one thing. I can make this planet better than God can. Wow, that's a pretty... Or God's big... whatever. Big claim. The first thing I would start to do is rain when everyone is sleeping so that you still get the benefits of rain because we need water and rain to survive. But, but, during the day, nice and sunny. But what about those nice people who have to work third shift? You gonna make them work in the rain? Um, I'll have to think about that. What you're proposing is just tyrannical in my opinion. I don't like it. Well, it's better, man. Everybody loves sun. I think rain is awesome. I could be out getting a tan right now if it weren't for that rain. You can go into a tanning bed. Get Why you some... I want to go to a tanning bed? Because... Why not be outside running around with my shirt off? Because, here's the thing, you can be shirtless in the tanning bed. Wow, it's I'm raining outside. <laughs> the thought of just staying inside of a box or whatever the hell a tanning bed is and doing nothing, I, I, my mind is like too OCD or whatever. I don't know. I actually don't like the idea either. Like, I've tried tanning outside before, you know, just kind of laying out in my lawn and just kind of soak up the rays. And it's, uh, I don't know, I have mixed feelings about it, but I, I do not like the idea of being inside a, a box, something coffin-shaped, with a lot yes. of heat. Yeah, and there's a, like light, so when you close your eyes, you're like, you're still looking at light, it's weird. Yeah, and there's all that, you know higher risk of skin cancer stuff, which I'm not particularly fond of. Oh, yeah. Wait a minute, hold on, wait. So, is there a higher risk from a tanning bed or outside? Oh, tanning bed, for sure. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
like granted now like people like my mom for instance have used like tanning beds for decades but she's never had any single case of like melanoma or anything but still the risk is higher and i don't want to risk it oh yeah man i ain't about risking that on yeah it's just uncomfortable and the reward is not worth it just to look darker um I don't know. When I do try well, to tan... Also, oh, yeah, go ahead. No, also, too, I heard, too, that if you get too much tan over extended years, you look kind of old. Like they say Ronald Reagan, for example, if you took all that makeup off him in the 80s when he was president, if you took all that makeup off him, I heard somebody say he looked like he was 110 years old. Oh, I never knew that. That's... Because, you know, you live in California. Oh, yeah. Did Ronald Reagan like to tan a lot? I think so. Oh. Much as I don't like him, he led an interesting life. Yeah. Which included making other people's lives suck. Especially if you <laughs> had AIDS. Oh, well, I'm not laughing at that. I'm just laughing. Yeah, he did. Yeah. yeah. I'm not afraid. Yeah. We don't like Ronald Reagan on this podcast, folks. He's we're, We are not Ronald Reagan fans. Well, yeah, not to get off on a tangent or anything, but Reagan, it was like, people say he's one of the greatest presidents ever, but he was one of the most um, absent presidents ever. He basically let the people under him just run roughshod all over the country and the world. Yeah, I mean, it was under his tenure that the uh, Iran-Contra scandal leaked to oh, the news. Man. Well, pick a scandal. <laughs> pick a scandal, yeah. A guy who pretty much just let his cabinet do whatever the hell they pleased. Whatever the hell they wanted to, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, getting everybody hooked up on neoliberalism and trickle-down economics and all that. Yeah. I'd like to do an episode one day where we talk about that. Maybe one day. Yeah. But we will be talking about something related to economics in just a bit. Or rather, finance. Well, interesting. I wonder if this is hmm, trickle down economics. Oh, not quite. In fact, <laughs> when when as we discover uh, a little more about what this thing called the United Order was, um, it's gonna come off as a little bit of communism. That's a dirty word, my man. I know, but hey, don't blame me. Blame Joseph Smith. He came up with this idea. Well, let's talk about it, because, yeah, now you got me hooked. All right. So, to preface, we're going to be talking about a few things first, and then we'll open up and continue into Mormon history, and we'll conclude with the full overview of what's called the modern era of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So, to begin, I'm going to let you take a guess. What do you think the United Order was? And to give you the full name of it, the original name, it was called the United Order of Enoch. What do you think that was? Well, based on uh, what we talked about last week, um, it was a proto-socialist uh, community. Of the early, very early 
Latter-day Saint community. I think you're pretty on the mark with that. So, the United Order, also called the United Order of Enoch, which I'm going to emphasize because that name is badass. Like, can you imagine, like, if that were the name of a church and someone asked you, hey, are you Methodist? Are you Catholic? What are you? And then you say, I'm a member of the United Order of Enoch. That's going to sound pretty badass, isn't it? I don't know. It sounds cultish to me. Sounds a little cultish, but you know what? And it sounds like one of those secret societies, too. Yeah, but it sounds cool. Like, if you're going to be part of a cult, I mean, United Order of Enoch sounds pretty cool. Let's be real. Um, so that yeah. said, United Order of Enoch was one of several 19th century church collectivist programs. Early versions of the order, beginning in 1831, attempted to fully implement what was called the Law of Consecration, a form of Christian communalism modeled after the New Testament church, which had, quote, all things in common. Something we see a lot in the Acts of the Apostles, right? That's where we kind of get oh, this yeah. idea, yeah, that the church held all things in common. You sold your stuff, uh, you gave your stuff to the church, and nobody really wanted for anything, and... Yeah, I don't think you can really separate well, it's not, uh, Christian yeah. history from efforts towards some kind of socialism. Well, yeah, it's not an American idea for sure. It's not an American value. No, it's not. But then again, oh, this yeah. is something that came out of the aftermath of the second temple period after the life and ministry of jesus of nazareth um during uh the era of the roman empire very very not american at all <coughs> but yeah no i mean america is like super individualistic i mean america is like a big old shark in the middle of the ocean just waiting to gobble you up. It's very super individualistic. Yeah, it's like being a fucking fish in the ocean living in America sometimes, you know? Like, you don't know what's around the corner. You don't know if the next day you're going to get eaten. You don't know the next day if you're going to have food. You don't know if, oh, you yeah. know. Yeah. Well, you think about it. We're all just one medical bill away from getting, like, put out on the street. Yeah. All it takes I, I think of my car. I'm like, dude, I don't care if I'm injured in my goddamn car. I'm I'm worried about my car because oh now I gotta take out another loan for my car. Yeah. If it's total, I'm like, oh okay. And God help you if you don't have gap insurance, <laughs> then you're completely screwed. Oh man, jeez. But yeah. So anyway. This United Order business. These early versions ended after a few years. Later versions within Mormonism, primarily in the Utah Territory, which we covered in our last episode, go check it out if you haven't, implemented less ambitious cooperative programs, many of which were actually very successful. The Order's full name invoked the City of Enoch, described in Latter-day Saint scripture as having such a virtuous and pure-hearted people that God had actually taken it to heaven. God just, like, sent his big old giant hand and he just scooped up the city and go like, whoop, 
I like you. Come up. You're you get to go up. God yeah, loves like Enoch. Yeah. So don't listen to what Pastor Chad in the first episode said. God loves socialism, folks. <laughs> remember that? <clears throat> yeah. Remember when oh, he said? Yeah. Remember when Pastor Chad oh. said God is not a socialist? Well, well he, <laughs> what do you call well, he this? He said it like uh, he just said it as a throwaway line. Then he went back to his. He just throws those jabs in there, like, oh, the the Congress is trying to create a generalist society, and then he talks about <laughs> something else, and then he says, God's not a socialist, and he talks, it's just... I'm never going to forget that. That That's something he needs to be always hounded for and reminded that, like, yo, you remember when you told, like, a congregation of thousands of people that Congress is working towards a genderless society? <laughs> well, well, now, think about this, though, as a church. A church is naturally a socialist institution. I mean... When you think about it, at least the principles that's laid out in the Gospels, yeah. it, it leans towards various kinds of cooperation, communalism, yes. yeah. things and like that. I mean. yeah. yeah. And if you don't like it, well, tough shit. It's in the Bible. And churches, too, are some of the best communities you can join. I think that's why a lot of people... I guarantee probably the majority of people who belong to churches all over many Christian denominations, they don't even believe half of the stuff that's in the religious text or that they're being taught. But they believe in the people in their community, and that's a huge, huge benefit of a church. I I look back at the people in my old church with great fondness, just community, community. Yeah, I mean, there's like a local community church in my area. And they fucking love helping out the community whenever they can. They love helping out because it's kind of, I'm not going to say where my location's at, but they love doing all these kind of like annual, month, semi-monthly projects that help the community. And they ask, they ask what the community needs and then they get together and then they, they try to fill that need. Like, we don't want anyone in the audience to think that this podcast is just anti-religion, anti-church. No, like there's some churches we actually really like. I mean, maybe one day we'll do one about the, um, like, are you familiar with the Shakers? No. Oh, we can go on a whole, that's that's an episode for another time, and it, you would be really, really interested in that. Um, but anyway, back to this United Order stuff. So, God takes his big old hand, which according to Mormonism, I mean, God has a body, so he does have a literal hand. Uh, he took up the city into heaven. The United Order established egalitarian communities designed to achieve income inequality. Or <laughs> income equality, excuse income me. Income equality, because we're so used to saying yes. inequality, but this is income equality. Yes. So, the communities are designed to achieve income equality, eliminate poverty, and increase group self-sufficiency. Those are all pretty badass things. Those are some dangerous ideals for American society. Yeah, I wonder why the Mormon church doesn't really push for this stuff anymore. Um, I mean, they're fine with the self-sufficiency stuff, but other than that, it's kind of like the conservative idea of being self-sufficient. You know, pulling up your bootstraps and all that jazz. Um, but anyway, the movement had much in common with other communalist utopian societies formed in the United States and Europe during the Second Great Awakening, which sought to govern aspects of people's lives through precepts of faith and community organization. 
However, the Latter-day Saint United Order was more family and property oriented than the utopian experiments at Brook Farm and the Oneida community. So let's not get too excited, I mean. It's kind of more focused on like family property scale. Um, not like townships or cities or anything like that, but still it's a pretty cool idea for what it was at its time. Membership in the United Order was voluntary, although during a period in the 1830s, it was a requirement of continued church membership. Participants would deed or consecrate all their property to the United Order, which would in turn deed back an inheritance or stewardship, which allowed members to control the property. Private property was not eradicated, but rather a fundamental principle in the system. At the end of each year, any excess that the family produced from their stewardship was voluntarily given back to the order. The order in each community was operated by the local bishop. The United Order is not practiced within mainstream Mormonism today. However, a number of groups of Mormon fundamentalists, such as the Apostolic United Brethren and the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, have revived the practice. The United Order was practiced by the liberal Mormon sect called the United Order Family of Christ and the Cutlerite sect, is that, Cut oh, it's Cutlerite, and the Cutlerite sect of the Church of Jesus Christ. So, any... That's diverse. You got the fundamentalists who practice it. Yeah, Mormonism... Or like on the right, and then you got the liberal. Mormonism is not a monolith, but it is very orthodox in that respect. Sure. So, this idea of a united order, this kind of comes under Joseph Smith uh, in the early period. But then it's extended to uh, the pioneer era under Brigham Young. So, we're actually going to skip forward towards that because it's going to well, be... Hold on. Before we do that, though, okay. go back to that... Uh... So... Participants would de participants in the United Order would deed or consecrate all their property to the United Order, which would in turn deed back an inheritance or stewardship, which allowed members to control the property. Mm -hmm. Private property was not eradicated, but was rather a fundamental pro uh, principle of the system. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out what that means. Well, there is a. Let's look at the source here for that. So there's. A report from a 1942 conference written by a guy named Clark J. Rubin. Right. Uh, and, it, and the title of the report is The United Order versus Communism. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> so I think they had to kind of like, you know, really take a gander at this and like, maybe come up with a reason for why nah this isn't like communism at all um well yeah because that whole line private property was not eradicated but was fundamental that seems to come out of nowhere considering this first sentence participants would deed all their property to the united order which would then get back an inheritance which allowed members to control the property yeah that's really interesting um so all the members, so the pri the private, the property is private, but all the members control it. Yeah, so it's all theirs privately. Yeah, so here's a section under here, titled yeah. communalism, 
and it talks a little bit more about that. So let's see what this has to say. Uh, Under the United Order, private property was not abolished. The sharing of goods, often cited as communalism, which is not communism, it's it's pretty different, was voluntary. Members of the church who chose to participate in the United Order voluntarily deeded their properties to the church, which would then give all or a portion of it back to the original property owner as a stewardship. Does that answer? So it's giving uh, all or a portion back to the original owner of the properties? Well, let's read the next sentence. The residue or property which was over and above what the owner and, and his family required for themselves was used by the church to provide to the less fortunate who would be required to pay it back either monetarily or by labor. Okay, so is this like... Is this like a timeshare or something? Yeah. yeah, it's just weird, man. It's hard. This is complicated. This is a very complicated... Oh, yeah. I feel like a sociologist would probably be able to explain this yeah. stuff because given the unique nature of Mormon society back in the pioneer era... I mean, maybe this would make more sense than it... Yeah, given the context of the time period. Yeah. Okay. So the residue was property... Or the residue or property, which is over and above what the owner... Okay, so if... So basically, if I have property, and it has some assets, and I'm, I'm guessing this is what it's saying. If my assets are more than what I actually need for my family, and I deed my property to the church, then some of that, either all of it, or some of it, like a portion, would go back to me, while the the excess was given to, you know, people in need. Okay. That's what I'm thinking. And then, like, the people in need would pay it forward or pay it back to the order through labor or like through money the private property owner was not forced to participate in the order nor was his property forcefully confiscated private property owners were free to join or leave the orders and were in control of their stewardship j reuben clark a member of the first presidency explained the fundamental principle of the system was the private property was the ownership of private property. Each man owned his portion or inheritance or stewardship with an absolute title which he could alienate or hypotheticate, whatever that means, or otherwise treat as his own. The church did not own all the property, and the life under the United Order was not a communal life. The United Order was an individualistic system, not a communal system. I don't know. I mean, some of this stuff seems uh, kind of communal to me, pal. No, dude. They are so pressed to distinguish themselves from communism. I'm getting that impression big yeah. time. Um, Especially the context of when that quote you just, you just uh, read in 1942. Yeah. <laughs> And the guy who I cited, J. Reuben Clark, was an American attorney, civil servant, prominent leader in the LDS Church, uh, prominent attorney in the Department of State, Undersecretary of State for U.S. President Calvin Coolidge, 1930, was appointed to United States Ambassador to Mexico. 
Um, interesting. So this yeah, is... Interesting. Not why... guy you can think of, and he's the ambassador to Mexico. I wonder how he feels. Clark... So this is interesting. I found the article about him. Um, there's a section at the very bottom, or right in the middle, rather, called Racism and Anti-Semitism. Oh. And oh, in great. that... And I think it's one, two, five. I think in the sixth paragraph, it says, Clark's anti-Semitism seemed to have derived at least in part from his ardent anti-communism. Quinn notes that, quote, although not all American anti-communists were anti-Semitic, the more intense tended to be. Rubin's own fusion of anti-communism and anti-Semitism were representative of this tendency. <laughs> Clark's view put him in at odds with LDS Church President David O. McKay, whose positive attitudes towards the Jews, Zionism, and the State of Israel were more representative of Mormons generally than were President Clark's anti-Semitic attitudes and administrative actions. Wow, this guy sounds like a fucking asshole. <laughs> Yeah, and he kept several copies of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is a, one of the most worst anti-Semitic texts in the history of the world. Uh, and it's uh, completely false. And it talks about a Jewish plan for yeah. to wanting to take over the world. So, yeah, it's... Wow. Strongly opposed... He resisted the social integrations of whites and blacks and strongly opposed interracial marriage. <laughs> this is a... This guy's a fucking dick. Man. Yeah. I'm kind of... A little bit more skeptical now, because he sounds fucking delusional, of his interpretation of... This, the nature of the system of the United Orders. Um, yeah. Underneath... Well, also... I think yeah. you have to consider, too, I mean, when the United Order was founded, there was no such thing as communism. Um, so mm. he's approaching it with, like, a different lens. Um, it's complicated because, at least under, like, Joseph Smith's time, you don't really see Marxism uh, coming around because that's not until way later. Um, well, 1848 was when uh, the Communist Manifesto was published. Yeah, so that would be more around the time um, of the Pioneer Era, that yeah. Communist Manifesto. And there was, uh, when socialism, even before, you know, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels published the manifesto, um, socialism was already an idea that existed in Europe. It was a very popular idea. And uh, a lot of immigrants that were coming from Europe, like places like Germany, for example, were themselves socialists, and they brought a lot of their ideas to America. And there was already kind of like a proto like different proto-socialist communities in the states, like uh, Brook Farm and the the Oneida community. Those were yeah. kind of socialist projects, um, or at least proto-socialist ones. Um, but yeah, anyway. Going back to this, Lorenzo Snow, a president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also highlighted to un the United Order's preservation of individual free will, which you don't have to give that up under communism, by the way, just saying. In things that pertain to celestial glory, there can be no forced operations. 
we must do according as the Spirit of the Lord operates upon our understanding and feelings. Wait, hold on a second here. There can, in things that pertain to celestial glory, the, glory, there can be no forced operations. But then he goes on to say, we must do according as the Spirit of the Lord operates upon our understandings and feelings. But does that sound like force a little bit? Yeah, especially like whose feelings, you know, whose quote unquote revelation. Yeah. So the choice really isn't there because it sounds like if God is influencing you, then you're to do something, you're probably going to do it. Um, but that aside, we cannot be crowded into matters. However great might be the blessing attending such procedure. We cannot be forced into living a cele into living a celestial law. We must do this ourselves of our own free will. And whatever we do in regard to the principle of the United Order, we must do it because we desire to do it. Okay, so... Seems to be a big insistence on individualism in this whole project. Um, <clears throat> and the final section of the United Order is the relationship to Marxist communism. The United Order was an attempt to eradicate poverty and promote a sense of unity and brotherhood within Latter-day Saint communities. The LDS Church's view is that the doctrine and the various attempts at practicing it should not be seen as part of the 19th century utopian movement in the U.S. and is distinct from both Marxist communism and capitalism. Leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the 20th century sought to make a clear distinction between Marxist communism and the law of consecration as practiced by the United Order, teaching that the practices differed as related to the topics of free will, private property, and deity. The law of consecration and the United Order can be compared to the shared economic arrangement presented in the New Testament as practiced by first century Christians in Jerusalem. In the book of Acts. Yep. In the 20th century, leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, including David O. McKay, Harold B. Lee, Ezra Taft Benson, Marion G. Romney, and J. Reuben Clark, that fucking asshole, claim that <laughs> communism is a, quote, counterfeit version of the law of consecration, unquote. In 1942, the Church issued the following statement. Communism and all other similar isms bear no relationship whatever to the United Order. They are merely the clumsy counterfeits which Satan always devi devises of the gospel plan. The United Order leaves every man free to choose his own religion as his conscience directs. Communism destroys man's God-given free agency. The United Order glorifies it. Latter-day Saints cannot be true to their faith and lend aid, encouragement, or sympathy to any of these false philosophies. <laughs> wow. Jeez, did J. Reuben Clark write that? Surprised he didn't throw in anything about Jews there. Yeah, he did. Message of the First Presidency, 112th Annual General Conference, April 6, 1942. Yeah. Nevertheless, oh wait, is that was that actually the source? Yeah, you're right. It was him. I didn't even look at the yeah. source. <laughs> he did write that. Wow. 
very good guy we should listen to about these things. Nevertheless, community unity and equality are central tenets of the Latter-day Saint doctrine of Zion, as described in Moses 7.18. And the Lord called his people Zion, because they were of one heart and one mind, and dwelt in righteousness, and there was no poor among them. Oh, that's deep. Sounds like socialism, bro. But yeah, taking well, this... I mean, you can't have no poor with... You can't have... There has to be poor people under capitalism. Has to be. Yeah. You have yeah. to have people in a position where they have to, quote, sell their labor on the market. <laughs> and there has to be people to buy that labor. That's the employer-employee relationship. And well, I use capitalistic to terms, rich, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. And for one person to be uh, rich it requires another person to be poor because there's a zero sum game there. Mm-hmm. Like I can, I believe that human beings can be materially well off on an equal level. But if you're talking about billionaires, for example, or millionaires, oh. no, that requires <laughs> deep levels of societal inequality there to make yeah. that happen. We can't all be billionaires. We can't all be millionaires. That's bullshit. But we can all be material, materially well-off and comfortable. And get some fucking health care, too. So, all right. I'm going to cover the history. So we have a pretty good idea of what the United Order was. Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah, basically a voluntary system of, you know... I guess you could say communal property lending. If that makes sense. Property, property sharing, property. Uh, yeah. Yeah, wealth sharing yeah. too. Well, yeah, because wealth. Well, hey, here's another thing. Wealth in America is tied to property. Yeah. Like when you um, when you have property, at least, at least at the beginning of this country. Yeah, and because when you have that. property, you. I mean. At the founding of the United States, having property mm-hmm. also was basically your source of income if you were yeah. producing, like, a commodity. Yeah. Whereas now, I mean, well, like, property is still tied to wealth in the United States. There's no denying that. Like, we well, tend- think about Yeah. Yeah. Because we well, tend think to think about it too. When uh, sorry, I didn't. Get, no, you go ahead. You go ahead. Into uh, reparations for. Uh, after the Civil War, and even during the end of the Civil War, um, reparations, 40 acres and a mule, that came from uh, William Tecumseh Sherman's uh, special field order 15, when he talked about, hey, all you slaves here in South Carolina, 40 acres and a mule, 40 acres of land, because land is tied to generational wealth and building that. Yeah, and even if you look at it in the modern context now, if you are coming from a family that has inherited property, you have solid wealth there. (laughs) Like, you have solid wealth invested in that property that's going across generations, and ideally you're trying to build on that wealth. You know, you have kids who are going to college, going and starting businesses, you know, doing things that would normally 
build intergenerational wealth. And property ownership is just one of the best ways to do it in America. Yeah, this country was founded on taking another's property, taking yeah. land. <laughs> so I'm going to cover the history of the United Order projects under Brigham Young. And then we're going to move on to the topic that you wanted to cover. And that will bring an end officially to the pioneer era and transition us into covering the modern era of Mormonism. Sound good? Absolutely. All right. Under Brigham Young. From 1855 to 1858, members of the LDS Church once again considered living under the United Order. During this period, under the leadership of Brigham Young, church members were instructed to prepare deeds of consecration. But these deeds were never acted upon, perhaps due to the community disruption caused by the Utah War, which if you don't remember from the previous episode, it was a short armed conflict between the, uh, the Utah Territory under the leadership of Brigham Young and the United States Army. Um, it was relatively bloodless. I mean, I think only like seven people died. Twelve, maybe, give or take. It's yeah. kind of hard to tell. But anyway, it was not until 1874 that Young initiated the United Order of Enoch, beginning in St. George, Utah, on February 9th, 1874. There were a number of differences between the United Order of Enoch and United Order communities established years earlier by Joseph Smith. Under Young's leadership, producers would generally deed their property to the order, and all members of the order would share the cooperative's net income, often divided into shares based on the amount of property originally contributed. Sometimes members of the order would receive wages for their work on the communal property. So we also kind of sounds a lot more clear than the other stuff. Yeah, that's kind of more clear cut. I don't know why it wasn't. I guess maybe it was because it was different compared to how it was under Joseph Smith. So if you're uh, a member of this order um, and you deed your property to the order, well, you and all the other members are going to share in the overall cooperative income that comes in. And then that gets divided into the shares, and that is based on the property originally contributed. Kind of makes sense. Yeah, Um, I could definitely see that going to inequality, too, because if you have access mm -hmm. to more property, you can... uh, You can give more, right? more, yeah. And you can potentially, assuming we're reading this right, get more out of the net income. Well, yeah, and it reminds me of something I was doing last night. I was uh, looking into stocks to invest my money, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. Um, like, I, like, say I wanted to give a 1000 yeah, and buy some stocks. Well, you can't really make any money off of a 1000 because, you know, how to really, really make money off of stocks in, like, for example, a savings account is you need to put a ton of capital into it. So I'm like... Well, that doesn't really make sense for me. <laughs> yeah, it's just like you have to have the you have to have the capital or at least a substantial amount of it to make it worth your time. Yeah, yeah. Um, because think about it: one stock can go up what, um, 
from five years it can go up to about a hundred dollars well that's cool uh, you made a hundred bucks but if you only had bought like ten shares yeah you didn't really you're yeah. not really wealthy precisely so this cooperative plan was used in at least 200 mormon communities most of them in rural areas outlying the central mormon settlements near the great salt lake most of the communities held out for only two or three years before returning to a more standard economic system one of the last united order corporations established the new community of bunkerville nevada in 1877 in 1888 the bunkerville cooperative dissolved under pressure from living water and a lack of individual dedication and initiative so apparently that fell apart because of limited resources and people kind of also saying hey this actually kind of fucking sucks um, of course this is in like nevada <laughs> this is 1888 nevada it, it everywhere probably <laughs> sucks <laughs> yeah like the united order established by joseph smith young's experiment with the united order was short-lived by the time of brigham young's death in 1877 most of his united orders had failed by the end of the 19th century the orders were essentially extinct historian andrew carl larson pointed out that the failure of these ventures are rooted in the frailties of human nature okay this sounds like a bull every time someone makes the human nature argument it's, it's bullshit <laughs> I'm already, like, turned off every time I hear anything about human nature. You can say anything is human nature when you want to argue something historically, you know? But, anyway, this is what he has to say. The habits of an acquisitive society were too strongly forged to be broken without the utmost devotion and selflessness to the cause, and rugged individualism triumphed over the abortive attempt at communal ownership and communal living here. Mm -hmm. Okay, pal. Some members and leaders of the church believe that the United Order will be reestablished sometime in the future. Many leaders have taught that the church's present system of welfare and humanitarian aid is a predecessor or stepping stone to the renewed practice of the United Order in the future. But what about, what about human nature, huh? What about rugged individualism? Mm. Well, rugged individualism has been used to uh, justify or explain away so many of American tragedies and crimes. Yeah. You know, I we're mean, the pioneers. We're going west. Rugged individualism. We're going to take away the indigenous people, the Native Americans' land. And we're bringing slaves with us, too. It's my right as an individual. Individual. <laughs> so, here's a brief section about uh, a very specific community called Kanab. So, the many United Order communities were set up amongst Mormon towns beginning in 1874. One in particular was the United Order of Kanab, which was a settlement initiated by Brigham Young. Kanab was established in 1870. That year, John R. Young and the local bishop, Levi Stewart, began colonizing the area, and 12 families followed to begin the endeavor. There was confusion as to who was the leader of the society. LDS church authorities appointed the bishop, and only they could revoke his status. 
but many wanted to elect John R. Young as president because he was related to LDS church president Brigham Young. This conflict of power lasted until January 5, 1875, when Levi Stewart became president. Eventually, Stewart resigned from his position and John L. John Nuttall of Provo took his place. Other families followed that other families followed that were either unhappy in their own lives or were from other failing colonies. By 1874, there were 81 families and about 17% of the men that lived in this community practiced polygamy. The houses were simple in structure and were usually two to three bedrooms. There were about three children per mother in every household and polygamous wives lived in the same home as well. Large families and all Mormon communities were regarded as a spiritual practice and the child to woman ratio in Kanab reflected that. Jesus Christ. Can you imagine living in this? Scary, man. Especially if I'm like, a, if I were a woman. Yeah. Like, like this is sex slavery, man. Like, what if you have a husband and you're one of three wives and you all have three children? It's like nine children and like three other women. And you know you're going to be expected to care for those little brats. Yeah. Even if they're not your kids. Yeah. You have to you have to help raise your sister wife's kids. Oh my god, that sounds so disgusting. Oh gosh. It's good. The main source of income for the community was raising livestock. Most of their wealth was in livestock, vehicles, and shares of stock and corporate enterprises. The land and the improvements made up the remainder of their wealth. This particular United Order was wealthy, but within the society there were major gaps. Everyone owned property, but some pieces of land were better than others. Doesn't that sound like uh, a line from a book by a certain well, author? That's, uh, <laughs> some are more equal than others. Sounds about right to me. Yeah. Eventually, Brigham Young ordered the community to diminish the financial gap that set them apart from the other communities. Many suffered hardships while living on the frontier and tended to move frequently around the same area to escape the harsh conditions and seek greater opportunities. It also made it easy to migrate since most of the wealth people had was movable. The number of families moving three or more times was below 50. Only 23 families moved four times or more and 13 moved five times or more. By 1880, the United Order of Kanab greatly decreased. Only 32 families remained of the original 81 families that came within the first year of its establishment. Many eventually migrated to Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, and Mexico. The young men tended to leave home before they were married and start families of their own. And like it said earlier in the article, uh, the United Orders kind of became extinct at the end of the 19th century. So, because one of the things that was talked about was polygamy, as we close up this section about the United Order, I think there's a topic that you wanted to cover, right? Well, yeah, so the modern era of uh, the church's history starts in 1890 about. Mm-hmm. And it begins with the 1890 Manifesto. 
Yes. And uh, so the 1890 manifesto was, it was a document, I guess, or it was rather a speech by the president uh, of the church at the time, Wilford Woodruff. And it's five paragraphs long. And basically what the 1890 manifesto is this. Uh, looking at it from a cynical perspective, it's a political ploy to an, uh, for Utah to become a state, which Utah, Utah became a state of the United States of America in 1896. But the 1890 uh, manifesto was given by Will Woodruff. Uh, he denied charges or accusations of polygamy um, in the church. And he states in it that if there is any polygamy in the church, he didn't. He had no knowledge of it. So it's really like a political document, if you think about it. And nothing in this letter reads like a quote-unquote revelation from God. It sounds very political. There's nothing about, God told me this, God told me that. Um, mm -hmm. Only after Woodruff's, Woodruff's death was it seen as divine revelation from God. That's interesting. I wonder who decided that. Yeah. And, and another thing, too, about this one, too, is um, this uh, manifesto did not affect current polygamous marriages. So, that, so if you were married, if you were in a polygamous marriage before this document, guess what? You were still allowed to be polygamous. Um, it was like a gradual ending of polygamous marriages. Mm-hmm. So, that is the 1890 Manifesto, and it led me down a rabbit hole, I would say, um, because after that, I noticed, I saw this word, uh, polyandry, and polyandry is a form of polygamy in which the woman takes uh, two or more husbands at the same time. Right. So, that that's just very interesting to me, the 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 difference between the two yeah polyandry and the church have a very interesting history and relationship you mean polygamy or polyandry i mean polyandry oh because oh, when, wow. when you think about it or at least i'm not so sure how prominent this was under brigham young i'm sure it happened but uh, at least what is known about Joseph Smith, anyway, is that, yeah, polyandry technically existed because Joseph Smith would marry the wives of men that had been sent off to missions. And both of those marriages were still seen as, you know, ongoing. Well, I see what you're saying, yeah. So technically, yeah. Oh, okay. A woman could have multiple husbands, but it's not the first thing that people would expect when they hear that phrase because you get like the idea of like something liberating almost like a woman is able to have as many husbands as she wants or something but yeah. no it's because she's technically uh sealed to do different men uh because yeah, one of them is the prophet women yeah yeah it's all it's sex slavery i mean that's essentially it I, is to me it's exploitation it's definitely exploitation yeah. I mean, well, one of the things, too, for polygamy, too, is that um, these settlers came to the, uh, the settlers are coming west, and one of the reasons 
you know, other than to satisfy their carnal desires, which assholes they are, fuck them, I hope their dick gets chopped off and fed to them. But anyway, another reason why they engage in polygamy is so that they can maximize the number of their kids, right? They might want to maximize the profit on their sperm, so to speak. Well. So, because they were settling, and so with a ton of kids, so we can, you know, so we can spread, spread out, literally. Right? Impregnate that soil. <laughs> Impregnating yeah. the soil, just like in the last episode. Yeah, it, that's kind of what they wanted to do. Plow <laughs> yeah. the a, land, literally. But yeah, figuratively speaking. <laughs> so that's basically. And what was the aftermath of this? I mean, what was the aftermath of the manifesto? Well, the aftermath was a gradual ending of polygamous. polygamous that church disting itself from but there was a big problem though because um like I, it did not affect current polygamous marriages yeah so you, people were grandfathered in huh they were grandfathered in wait a minute grandfathered in does when that mean th- it would apply to them if they were oh oh i see what you're saying yeah they were grandfathered yeah. in yeah. yeah their marriages were grandfathered in i should have said i check out the what you like to call spicy, but uh, Utah became a state, right? Mm-hmm. And so the national government um, really brought this issue to the forefront because Utah's elected representatives to the national government had a hard time finding acceptance. For example, this dude named B.H. Roberts yeah. was elected in 1898 to the U.S. House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. But he was... He was a practicing practicing polygamist, so he was denied a seat uh, to the U.S. House of Representatives. So, like, dude, no. B. And H- then, um, he's a very in interesting guy, B.H. Roberts. Oh, really? Well, yeah. What do you know about him? So, he kind of wrote a very critical history, if I remember right, about the Book of Mormon. So I'm just going to skip to his page where it says Studies of the Book of Mormon. Studies of the Book of Mormon, okay. Although Roberts continued to testify the truth of the Book of Mormon, a foundational work, he also wrote three studies, unpublished until 1985, that wrestled with the Book of Mormon's problems. The first of the, quote, Book of Mormon difficulties, a study, unquote, was a 141-page manuscript written in response to a series of questions by an inquirer referred to Roberts by church president Herbert J. Grant. When Roberts confessed that he had no answer for some of the difficulties and the general authorities chose to ignore them, Roberts produced a, quote, a book of Mormon study, unquote, which was a treatise of more than 400 pages. In the work, he compared the Book of Mormon to the View of the Hebrews written by Ethan Smith and found significant similarities between them. And View of the Hebrews is a... uh, it's a book written in 1823 by a guy named Ethan Smith, and he argued that Native Americans were descended from the ten lost tribes of Israel. And this was kind of like a very common view in the early 19th century by white American settlers. Is Wait, that this is not more? The Mormons didn't come up with this, or they did. So it's not entirely a uniquely Mormon idea. Um, there was this general, there was like different ideas and theories out there 
and I'm using theories very fucking liberally here because it's bullshit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that it, it was something that was really in white America's colonial mindset that somehow Native Americans were basically related to Israelite tribes for some fucking reason. So, and there's a lot of criticism about the Book of Mormon um, that the Book of Mormon reflects this. Now, it doesn't necessarily say, the criticism isn't that Joseph Smith copied from the view of the Hebrews, it's that, wow, there's a lot of fucking similar themes in the view of the Hebrews in the Book of Mormon. One of them is this. So... It kind of comes off as like both of these texts, the Book of Mormon and View of the Hebrews, are kind of just spawning from this imagination. So, anyway, finally, Roberts wrote, quote, a parallel, a condensed version of his larger study, which demonstrates 18 points of similarity between the two books, and in which he reflected the imaginative Joseph Smith might have written the Book of Mormon without divine assistance so for a guy that's a mormon that's pretty ballsy yeah absolutely yeah he was a as far as like there's a there are episodes of mormon stories about this guy about uh that i would totally recommend if you just type in mormon stories bh roberts you'll find some conversations about him but he's a really fascinating guy and he's a very intellectually honest character um, but anyway, going back to the history stuff. So, guys like B.H. Uh, Roberts and other Mormon politicians who are refused seats in Congress because of their polygamy, that's becoming a thing. So, what else was part of this aftermath? Um, well, yeah, there was another guy um, named... Uh, well, in 1903, the Utah legislator appointed uh, Reed Smoot. Um, I'm tempted to say Smut, but I think it's Smoot. Reed Smoot. <laughs> yeah, S-M-O-O-T. Uh, so, in 1903, the Utah legislator appointed Reed Smoot, uh, who was a monogamist, as its first senator. And there were congressional hearings as to whether he should even be seated. And this lasted for four years. So this issue of polygamy was a huge issue when it came to uh, the United States government and the relationship to the Mormon Church. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot of resistance and pushback in the aftermath of this to Mormons being seated. And like the Senate and the House... And generally, there's still a lot of animosity and suspicion towards Mormons in general from the rest of mainstream America. Mm-hmm. Well, it really reminds me, too, of uh, state versus national government. I mean, you look at got the national government, which is saying, hey, polygamy is wrong, etc., no polygamy. And then you've got this church, which is kind of resting on the edge here of, oh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the church seems to represent the entire state of Utah. I think, yeah. what what is it, like 80% of Mormons today are, uh, 80% of, what, politicians in Utah are Mormon? Yeah, um, I, th- I think that's the number. Where did I number. see that? I saw it too, yeah. 
I saw that something. Well, don't quote us on that, but I, yeah. But yeah, so there is no separation of church and state here. Essentially, is what I'm trying to say. That's something that was raised as a massive concern by you know people like after the 1890 manifesto was published, whether the church was still intertwined with state politics or national politics. Um, then president of the church, Joseph F. Smith, issued a second manifesto denying that any post-manifesto <laughs> manifesto marriages had the church's blessings and announcing that those entering such marriages in the future would be excommunicated. The second manifesto also did not uh, annul any existing plural marriages in the church, and the church still kind of tolerated some degree of polygamy, at least until the 1930s. However, the church eventually adopted a policy of excommunicating its members found practicing polygamy and today seeks to actively distance itself from Mormon fundamentalist groups like the FLDS who still do practice polygamy. Um, in modern times, members of the Mormon faith don't practice polygamy. However, if a Mormon man becomes widowed, he can still be sealed to another woman while remaining sealed to his first wife. However, if the wife, if the woman becomes widowed, she doesn't get to do that. She doesn't get to be sealed to another man. She can be married legally, but not in the temple. And that has the, that has like afterlife consequences in the yeah. afterlife. So it kind of brings up the idea of what's called celestial polygamy. Yeah, well, it really reminds me of this, like, say husband and wife, right? Yeah. They get married for the first time, and one of them dies, and the other one gets remarried. Well, who does, who do they get buried with when they die if they both choose to be buried? Um, that's, a, that's what this reminds me of. That's a good question. Because I think of my mom and dad, right? And I think, well... My mom and dad have a uh, my mom and dad have a headstone together, right? So she's getting buried with my dad, but she's uh, she's dating someone else yeah. because my dad's dead and she shouldn't want to be alone. So I'm like, so that guy who she's dating now uh, mm -hmm. will be alone when he's buried, and she'll be with. Uh, it's weird, man. Yeah, I'm reading another article on here about what's called celestial marriage and celestial polygamy. So it basically reiterates a lot of the same things. Um, many Mormons believe that all these marriages will be valid in the eternities and the husband will live together in the celestial kingdom as a family with all to whom he was sealed. In 1998, the LDS Church changed the policy and now also allows women to be sealed to more than one man. So I oh. guess now the now women could do that? That's well, interesting. Yeah, but we're talking about eternity. What the fuck? You can't just change something for all eternity and then change what that doesn't make sense. It's yeah, eternity. That's it's some forever. bullshit. That's bullshit. <laughs> Plus didn't Jesus say something about angels? Men will be like angels in heaven where they're not gonna get married or Maybe. A woman a woman, however, may not be sealed to more than one man at a time while she is alive. 
What? What? What do you mean? While she is alive? How? How is she going to be sealed to more than one man if she's fucking dead? You can't marry dead people. <laughs> she may only be sealed to subsequent partners after she has died. What the fuck? What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, in the Bible too, Matthew twenty-two verse thirty. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. And I'm sure the Mormons have some way of interpreting that that's different from the obvious of what I'm thinking. But Yeah. Oh, th this is continued. Proxy ceilings, like proxy baptisms, are often to the person in the afterlife. According to church teachings, the celestial marriage covenant as with other covenants, requires the continued righteousness of the couple to remain in effect after this life. If only one remains righteous, that person is promised a righteous eternal companion in eternity. What the fuck did I just read? What? <laughs> I don't understand. Like the 70 versions in heaven type stuff. I know, but yeah. it doesn't make... I'm so confused. And this is crap. This is like a, a change in policy from 1998. <laughs> Wait, this is a more recent than 1998? Yeah, because before 1998, like, the woman could not be sealed to another man or another husband. Just period. But a husband can be sealed to multiple wives. Um, not, not in the polygamous sense, like, not at the same time. But, you know, if his first wife dies, uh, and then his second wife dies and his third wife dies well guess what all three wives are sealed to him throughout all eternity but it was not the same case for women at that time either but now after 1998 there's a change in that policy but it's more complicated because she's not allowed to be sealed to more than one man at a time while she's alive who's gonna marry a fucking dead woman <laughs> <laughs> The only person that's going to marry a fucking dead woman is a necrophiliac. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't even want to go there. Nah, fuck that. Ugh. Uh, so wait, so a woman, like, this, so wait a minute. So hold on, wait. So a woman goes to heaven, well, whatever their fucking heaven is, and she's like, well, I got to be with my first husband. And, this is damn confusing. <laughs> it, stuff like this, like... This is what I'm saying. When they pull this shit out of their asshole, what do they expect? They have to keep backing on it and backing on it. It's like when you invent something, like you, when you lie, you got to keep lying to make this lie true. Yeah, or to have it at least make somewhat more sense. I don't... Yes. Yeah. Wow. That, that, that's a lot. That's a lot to process. You know, <laughs> that's absolutely just too much. That's such, oh my God. I don't know. I think, yeah, my brain's kind of fried. I think maybe now would be a good place to stop and then resume later. Or at least about this marriage business. I think we could probably power through the history stuff. All right. Yeah. I think we could do that. Because uh, I don't know if we necessarily need a part four on this stuff. <laughs> All right. But yeah, it's just a matter of figuring out where we left off. Uh, 
Do you remember how I got on that tangent <laughs> to begin with? Well, we... Oh, the second manifesto. That's it. Yeah, yeah second, second manifesto. manifesto yeah. Uh, published by uh, president so, of the Smith's ch- nephew. Yeah. Yeah. Six. The sixth president of the church, Joseph Fielding Smith Senior. Um. Okay. Wow, he looks a lot like Dumbledore for some reason. If you put like a little wizard hat on him, he would look like Dumbledore. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. So. This is, okay. The second manifesto did not annul existing plural marriages within the church, and the church tolerated some degree of polygamy, at least until the 1930s. However, eventually, the church adopted the policy of excommunicating members found practicing polygamy and today seeks to distance itself from Mormon fundamentalist groups still practicing polygamy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Already covered this section here. Yeah, we got that. Yeah, the, the temple ceiling crap. That was a lot to do with... That just covered kind of like the history of polygamy, I think, and modern era Mormonism. Um, Do you want to cover the LDS church and politics section? Well, for the 20th century? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we can go over it. Because you were talking about Uh, Reed Smut and uh, who else? Who else did we bring up in that? B.H. Roberts? Uh, B.H. Roberts, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I guess uh, the history of the, to summarize the history of the 20th century, um, so it begins with this precarious relationship between the national government and the state government of Utah, which is really weird because the Utah state legislature, basically Utah is being run by Mormons. So there really is no separation here of political beliefs from religious beliefs. That's quite interesting. So that's how we begin the 20th century, with that precarious relationship. And then so what you see in the 20th century here is very active church when it comes to getting involved in national politics mm-hmm. and, and in the politics of other states as well. Um, flexing its muscle a little bit. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like, for example, uh, just as just a couple of examples, um, the gay marriage California in California, what was that Proposition 8? Yeah, that was Prop 8. Yeah, the, the church was involved in, in that. Church was also involved in gay marriage legislation in Hawaii. Yeah. All places. That was like, what, <laughs> a decade before? 1990s yeah that was a decade before the prop 8 stuff so it's prop 8 in 2008 was not the first time the lds church decided to go after the rights of gay people or just other groups of people in general in the country And so one of the big uh, one of the biggest things in the 20th century, especially in the early 20th century, that the church was involved in um, on a national level was prohibition. Um, the Latter Day Saint, I'll just say Mormon Church, because the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints was very involved in the temperance movement and in the prohibition movement in the 20th century. Um, and I don't, yeah, Mormons aren't allowed to drink. I don't even think they're allowed to have coffee or no. caffeine. Well, so they, they can ha- they can that. they can technically drink Mountain Dew now and stuff like that. 
Oh, okay. Ca- caffeinated soda is okay, <laughs> but not coffee. Yeah, it's weird. Plus tea. I'm like, I'd rather... I love tea. Like, dude, if I'm getting caffeine, I'm getting it from tea. Tea is awesome. I love tea. Dude. And so, um... I guess one of the biggest things, too, at least to me, comes to the 20th century, is this hatred of communism, I guess? Mm-hmm. We talked about... American as apple it's, pie. Yeah. But the Mormons seem to be very um, extra hate, hateful toward it. Um, and we can see this in terms of why? Wealth. So one of the things during the 20th century that we see is we see the church become more rich. Mm-hmm. So that's where we, uh, we kind of started with, uh, with that at the first episode of our Mormon uh, series. Then we with the Ensign Peak Fund, uh, Foundation Fund, or rather? The Ensign uh, Peak Advisors. Peak Advisors, yeah. Yeah, and so um, those are basically the notes that I took in the research for the 20th century. Anything you have to add? Yeah. Um, I think we could cover, because we covered quite a bit when it comes to the church's involvement in national politics. Um, mm-hmm. Like, for example, you and I talked earlier about how the church under Spencer W. Kimball opposed the Equal Rights Amendment. That was passed in, let's see here, when was it? The first version of the ERA was... 70s? Yeah, something like that. Originally set a ratification date for deadline of uh, March 22nd, 1979. As for... Yeah. Yeah. Through 1977, the amendment received 35 of the necessary 38 state ratifications. uh, wide Wide bipartisan support. Um, seem to, let's see, when was this? Well, what's interesting to me while you find that is, um, Mm -hmm. a lot of this has to do with what cultural wars type of thing, where, um, they're getting more away from, well, what's good government? What's good economic policy? Well, no, let's focus more on social issues, conservative social issues, and that's one thing that's striking me about the 20th century mm-hmm. with their, with the church's involvement on a national level. Yeah. So the Equal Rights Amendment actually has not been passed yet. It has no, been, no, it hasn't. been... It's been debated for decades. It's a proposed amendment to the U.S. Constitution designed to guarantee equal legal rights for all American citizens, Regardless of sex, it seeks to end the legal distinction between men and women in matters of divorce, property, employment, and other matters. It's interesting. And the first version of this, this came out in 1923. It's been almost a hundred years since this was originally put put to paper. And we still haven't fucking passed this stuff yet. <laughs> it's still well, not... I mean- like, other states have kind of ratified it and stuff, and a lot of the content has kind of changed, you know, as, like, the culture has changed. But this this had a very simple premise, and that was basically equal protection under the law for yeah. American citizens, regardless of sex. And, yeah, but or at least a more... That, oh, go ahead. Did the 14th Amendment do that already? 
Evidently not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the uh, one of the things in the Fourteenth Amendment is um, we're all equal before the law. Yeah, yeah. So maybe they're like, well, we don't need another amendment to say what's already in the Fourteenth Amendment. Yeah, I mean, unless you want to include like you know gender identities and stuff like that to this kind of protection. But you could say, I don't know, wouldn't the 14th Am Amendment also be covering that? I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, Equality before the law, yeah. yeah. That's one thing, uh, well, not to go off on a little tangent here, but that's the one thing during the Plessy versus Ferguson 1896 case that the Supreme Court Justice argued um, that, A, um, well, he argued that segregation could be legal because... <laughs> This is a weird argument, but he argued that there's a difference between social equality and legal equality, and he used the 14th Amendment's uh, legal equality clause to uh, argue that segregation, um, as long as we have, as long as we're all equal before the law, uh, and as long as facilities are equal, Segregation is okay because there's a difference between social equality and legal equality. So very fucked up, but yeah, I've heard <laughs> that argument before. Yeah, and regardless, um, the LDS Church decided to say, or at least under Spencer W. Kimball, basically, who was twelfth president of the church, basically said, you know what, fuck that, <laughs> just said fuck you and your equal rights amendment. Get that shit out of here. Yeah, that, that's one thing too that just noticed me with the twenty doing some reading of the twentieth century is that uh, the church is getting more conservative. I, I guess you can say. Yeah, it starts to really kind of build its political identity around American conservatism. Yeah, I'm sorry. I should have I should have said that because conservative, obviously, religion is a conservative thing. Well, generally speaking, they yeah. want to conserve and not. But but uh, I should say American right of center. But but uh, I should say American right of center. There you go.